Welcome to another episode of The Vast Majority. I'm Jacobin Deputy Editor Micah Utrecht. One of the best books I have read on the labor movement recently is Knocking on Labor's Door, Union Organizing in the 1970s and the Roots of a New Economic Divide by Lane Windham. It is great on a number of fronts. I mean, it first of all, if you don't really have a sense of like what unions are and do i mean if you're like okay unions are good i know that but beyond that you're not really sure much about the details of uh, unions and why they're important uh i would recommend this book highly for the portrait that it paints of uh, all of that and not just on the sort of theoretical level but also explains all of it through case studies the book focuses on the 1970s which is often talked about as this era in which the working class of america moved to the right that set the stage for Ronald Reagan that in some ways is the world that we're still living with today Uh, but Wyndham argues that the picture of that period is actually a bit more complicated uh, and talks about how there was not a kind of like as we discuss in our conversation today a culturalist shift by workers rightward that somehow had them decide that they didn't need unions anymore. Uh, In fact, it was a period in which enormous numbers of new workers, especially black workers, female workers, were entering the workplace for the first time. uh, And just like the white workers of several decades previous, decided that they needed a union in order to gain access to the you know meager social welfare state that we have in the United States uh, through those unions. Uh, and they often fought really noble and heroic battles in order to try to win unions uh, on the job. They did so in enormous numbers, as Wyndham notes in this book. Uh, but what stopped them was not any kind of lack of a desire for getting unions, but in fact, the employer pushback that really began uh, in that era. Lane Windham is associate director of Georgetown University's Kalmanovitz Initiative for Labor and the Working Poor. Lane, welcome to the vast majority. I'm thrilled to be here with you. So why don't you just start with the basic premise of your book, Knocking on Labor's Door, uh, the time period it covers, what 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 the ground total ground that it covers, and 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 what the argument you're seeking to make in it is. Sure, knocking on labor's door offers a very different narrative for organized labor's trajectory, and about the history of today's working class. You know, the standard line that you often hear is, "Well, unions declined because workers turned away from unions," and Unions became super bureaucratic. They did very little to reach out to to workers. And the 1970s is sort of the locus of this decline. The story that I tell is really different. And knocking on labor's door, the 1970s are the first days of a newly diversified, reshaped, and energized working class. I think that many historians have actually been blind to the vitality of the 1970s working class because they've been focused on one thin slice, uh, which was unionized white men. And so they often tell a story of backlash and defeat. 
I ask readers to broaden their focus to the women, the people of color who didn't have unions, but who were trying to form them. They finally had greater access to many of the nation's jobs and the nation's unions following the 1964 Civil Rights Act. As they poured into the nation's workforces in the 1970s, um, and as they got these jobs, they began to form unions and uh, really powered a whole new wave of union organizing that has largely been hidden. So it seems like a, a, a part of this argument is to counter the argument that there was some kind of sort of ideological shift within American workers themselves that, that suddenly in the 1970s, the American working class you know, decided n- not to go for this uh, class struggle stuff anymore and instead move in the direction that culminated in what R- Reagan's election in 1980 and the rise of the Reagan Democrat uh, and, and the move of, of, of white workers into uh, the Republican Party and supporting Ronald Reagan. It, it's not that there was a uh, ideological shift on the, the part of workers which pulled the working class to the right. It's that there was a an offensive by capital that really took off in the era that you chronicle in the in the 1970s uh, that led to a, a, a new group of workers who had that same desire to organize uh, unions and and to you know fight for better wages and everything else that unions bring, uh, but were blocked by this new offensive that uh, employers were carrying out in this period. Right. So I think that the narrative that historians and journalists have been telling was not entirely wrong because there certainly were elements of the working class who uh, turned to be more conservative, often, though not always, but often white men. And I do think that we need to understand more about why some white men turned to the right and why some didn't because many did not, right? Many actually were willing to follow the leadership of women and people of color as they led this new wave of union organizing. What my narrative does is it expands our understanding of what was going on and points beyond the unionized white men who you know, were not a monolith and says, look at all these people who wanted to be part of these democratic organizations who wanted a union. Um, and it is a, a, a different understanding of the 1964 Civil Rights Act and its meaning with labor. A lot of the um, his, historians will talk about how there was a dichotomy where uh, the class rights were op- in opposition to sort of the civil rights, right? But from the point of view from the people who I studied, that makes no sense. You know, for instance, um, at the Newport News shipyard where Eddie Coppage and Oscar Pretlow, uh, who are African-American men, they had first filed civil rights charges and won them. And when it still wasn't enough for them to make a good living, then they called in the United Steelworkers and they uh started to form a union, their life was both, they needed both sets of rights, right? And in fact, they were going to use whatever tool they could in order to advance their prosperity and security. 
And so this this dichotomy that uh, historians and other academics talk about just makes no sense when you get down to the grassroots level of the actual people who are fighting uh, for more more power in their lives. Right. I mean, one of the things that you talk about in the book is how, as you already mentioned, the civil rights movement, the feminist movement, etc., that those energies of the 1960s become fuel for black workers and for women and other kinds of workers to then go into work their workplaces and organize uh, there is like not any kind of like neat uh, <laughs> their, their feminist consciousness is being raised over here but then you know the, over here on the job they're they're doing something different it's like no clearly the entire world that where they were supposed to uh, you know stay at home and uh, you know care for the kids and, and handle their their husbands every every day uh, desire like that 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 was out the window with feminism and then when they went to the workplace they took that same energy and then wanted to form unions there and so they're, they're not distinct things happening they're not distinct processes taking place in american workforces uh they're, they're actually like the, the the one is fuel for the other that's absolutely right you know once people begin to break down the structures and the barriers in their life that's incredibly empowering, and it definitely spills over into all areas of their life. Um, and so, yes, absolutely, the women, for instance, I write about the women of, uh, who formed an organization in Boston called Nine to Five Clerical Workers. They absolutely understood their work through um, as an outgrowth of the, of the women's movement. But it, it wasn't... Uh, just labor feminists like them. Also, I spoke with a lot of retail workers at the Woodward and Lothrop department store. And these are women who, um, who ne weren't even necessarily part of an organized women's group, but they understood their organizing as uh, growing out of their new role as a woman in society. That was part of their understanding of why they were going to stand up and demand more in their role as a retail worker in a department store. Now, before we go on to some of those details, like the cases that you're talking about, I mean, you mentioned just now, I think you said something like that it was actually the first days of the working class or the beginning days of the working class. Uh, that, you know, the thing that comes to mind uh, immediately is uh, the labor historian Jefferson Cowie's book, Staying Alive, which uh, the subtitle is The 1970s and the Last Days of the Working Class. And I think you kind of mentioned Cowie uh, in passing in the in the introduction of the book, but um, he, he his work seems like it's, it's probably a work that some of our listeners are familiar with, and it, it seems like his work is one of the ones that you're arguing uh, against here, uh, where he's sort of painting the portrait of, uh, you know, there was this New Deal order that was kind of centered around the labor movement in the 70s are the time in which that is in decline. Uh, your argument is obviously uh, very, very different from that. Yeah, and I that's right. So, so Jeff Cowie's book, uh, Staying Alive, The Last Days of the Working Class, he just misses it. He doesn't see the large numbers of, of women and people of color and this whole new energy of people who are um, diversifying the working class and also who are pushing into unions and have a whole new level of class activism. And here's the thing is that I think that, you know, um, Jeff Cowie did not um, question the standard historical narrative that says that 
unions became bureaucratic and turned away from workers, that workers turned away from unions. He just didn't question it. And that's actually an, it's, it's a larger narrative. It goes beyond him. It's one that um, many scholars have, have used. It came, it really started, I think in the 1980s. Um, and um, he did, he didn't question it. And there are so many scholars who didn't question it. It's pretty amazing to me that when I began to look at labor board elections in the 1970s, for instance, the Newport News election was the largest in the 1970s. It was the largest labor board election ever in the South. And yet no historian except Judith Stein had written like two pages on it, but that was it. Nobody else had studied it. And there were so many elections. I kind of had my, I could cherry pick to some extent which ones I wanted to talk about. And I think it's because scholars had been largely blind uh, to this movement. And it was because they saw the working class as white and male fundamentally. Because once you begin to look at the working class outside of that frame, outside of a unionized white male working class, it's very obvious. <laughs> but also, as you mentioned earlier, I mean, the, even the picture of what the the segment of the working class that is white and male is more variegated than people want to talk about. I mean, I'm looking at my copy of Coey's book right now, and it's got on the bottom uh, the famous hard hat riot uh, on, on Wall Street uh, in which white construction workers uh, beat up uh, anti-war protesters. I forget what year in the early 70s, I think. And I mean, that whole narrative of, uh, of of the reactionary construction workers, the reactionary white male construction workers against these these dumb hippies. I mean, that's been, you know, historians like Penny Lewis have, have talked about the how that was, you know, that actually the, even among the white male working class, there was far more opposition to the war in Vietnam than you would think just by have watching the the footage or looking at the photos from that, uh, that the hard hat, right? I mean, the whole the whole picture is more complicated than this. That's right, and I think that we actually need a lot more research on on those on those white men on the white working class because I don't think we've nailed it yet at all. Well, obviously, this is very central to our whole contemporary. We're getting ahead of ourselves here, but like <laughs> this is still a central issue in contemporary American politics a half a century later. Yes, it's true. Part of why I think it's important to talk about th- this narrative is that if if you view the 1970s as the kind of last days of the working class, uh, then it, it, it pushes you down some kind of very pessimistic routes. I mean, Cowie doesn't do this, but some people would, would see that and then say, well, and that's why the left shouldn't have made such a big deal about feminism or shouldn't have made such a big deal about racism. It, it alienated these white workers. It fragmented uh, the working class movement and it, uh, it it pushed us into this abyss that we're in now. Right. So you end up with uh, Joe the Plumber. Right. I don't know if yeah, you remember him right. from 2008. <laughs> you end up with Joe the Plumber, like this independent you know, white guy who's moved to the right and it's messaging. The left hasn't messaged to Joe the plumber well enough, right? But if you follow my narrative, uh, you very much more clearly see that there's a diversified working class that is battling for security and prosperity for their families and for their futures. And that was true in the 1970s and it is true today. The tools that they are using are different. The organizations that they are using is different, but the battle itself is is still there, and it is um, 
yes, the the diversified working class that we have today absolutely started in the 1970s following the 1964 Civil Rights Act. Which moves away from these kind of culturalist understandings of what the working class was doing, because, I mean, the basic Marxist contention, for example, about workers fighting back is that there is this contradiction between, you know, workers and the boss under capitalism. And so that naturally creates pushback. But if you ta- if you buy into that culturalist uh, explanation, then it's just like, oh, well, something happened and these people all just decided to, to stop, you know, fighting the boss and that they were that their bo- interests were actually tied up in, in the bosses. And, and it, then you have to understand that all, mostly through culture. Um, but so your your argument is, is a different one from that. So um, can you explain a little bit? I mean, a, a lot of your book is not just about uh, whether or not people were trying to organize unions, who was organizing unions, but it's also about the role that unions have in creating a social welfare state in the United States. Why and how the United States social welfare state is different from, say, Europe's uh, and and why unions became uh, in in some ways more more central to well, I guess I should rather say not that unions were more central to winning the welfare state since they were obviously central in Europe but that in the U.S. the people who got access to what welfare state we did have got it through uh, their unions uh, and that obviously matters because the people who you're talking about in the book that you're saying that there are uh, large numbers of African American workers women workers etc who are starting to uh, get engaged in union organizing drives, who are trying to gain access to that social welfare state for the first time in really massive numbers. That happens right at the moment when there's this massive employer pushback. So can, can you just explain the, the sort of the, the, your argument in the book about the welfare state? Sure, I'd be happy to. Um, so I had to answer the question, uh, why did employers start to push back so heavily against unions in the 1970s, right? Um, After all, you know, employers and unions in the U.S. had never gotten along that great, but there was sort of this period of detente, right, in the 50s and 60s. So I had to understand what was going on. And it, it got me to think through social welfare, because in this country, of course, employers are the providers of much of our social welfare. Much of our social safety net, like our pensions and our health care, comes through our employers. And this employer-provided social compact developed after World War II. It's different, as you mentioned, in lots of other countries, where the social safety net is either provided universally to all citizens or where employers are required to provide these social benefits. The U.S. never required that, right? We never said, you really, you have to provide these benefits. Instead, we said to employers, you have to bargain over these social benefits with workers who have jumped through all these hoops that it takes to form a union in this country. You have to engage in collective bargaining. Um, And our system thus relies on unions and collective bargaining to do the kind of redistribution and social safety net work that governments do elsewhere. When the employers faced a crisis of profit in the 1970s, and especially in a globalizing economy, they wanted out of these social welfare obligations. Well, the best way out, right, attack the one entity that in the U.S. can legally force you to play that social welfare role. It's not the government, right? It's collective bargaining. It's a union. 
When the employers attacked union organizing in the 1970s, they they really attacked what was a cornerstone of our nation's employer-provided social compact. Um, and in fact, I came to understand that their attack on unions was actually part of their assault on the entire employment relationship. They began hiring far more part-time workers, contractors. They stopped offering benefits. Eventually, of course, this has evolved into what we now know as the gig economy. Um, and, uh, you know, we've just seen this giant shift and how over over the decades and how the economy works. And it started in the 1970s and resisting workers' union organizing efforts was part of that. And, and here's why I think that's really important. When we think today about how working people can build power, it's not enough to rebuild the old building blocks of how workers entered into unions or how they entered into collective bargaining. It's not enough to fix labor law, though we need to do that too. We have to understand the way that collective bargaining was a cornerstone to this whole system. We have to understand that that employers are breaking the whole system down. And so it is a major um, a major goal of today's workers' movement has to be to rebuild the social compact, hopefully in a way that the employers are not so central, and to do it in a way that workers have power. And can you talk about this idea of the the narrow door? You, you've been getting into some of that already, but uh, just like that, that reemphasize assumedly most of the people who listen to this podcast want to rebuild a uh, or build a social welfare state a universal one a robust one uh, for the maybe for the first time in the u.s history uh and that the, the way that you could do that uh the way that anyone can do that historically in the united states has been through uh what, what do you call this narrow door uh, uh of the the labor movement so explain that concept in order for workers to build a union in this country and to gain access to the most secure tier of our nation's employer-provided social welfare state, which, as we just discussed, is collective bargaining, right? In order to, to win that kind of security, they have to get through a very narrow door, which is to form a union. And I think many of your listeners know what it takes to form a union in this country, but I'll just review <laughs> for those who don't. Um, if in the private sector, to form a union, if um, workers at a workplace uh, have to sign union cards, at least a third have to sign up for the union. Usually the union organizers wait till 50% have signed up. They take the cards to the National Labor Relations Board uh, which then sets a date for an election. The employer then has free reign to campaign against the union, to force workers into anti-union uh, meetings. They can say to the workers, you're not even allowed to speak in those meetings. Uh, they Employers routinely fire workers, threaten to move, threaten to take away their pay and benefits. The um, Penalties for that are nearly non-existent. Employers, if they are found to have broken the law, just have to hang a little blue and white sign in their break room that says they broke the law and maybe pay a fired worker what they would have earned anyway. 
on the job. That's it. There's no big fines, right? Okay, so so starting in the 1970s, employers began to bend and break the law at a whole new level. Whereas in the 1940s, workers won 80% of their union elections. By the end of the 1970s, they were winning less than half of the elections that they themselves had triggered, that they had wanted. Um, And it's because employers ramped up their resistance uh, so heavily to this. What that means is that if workers are going to, to, to enter into that system uh, in which they get the good wages, the you know, uh, employer-provided benefits and pension, all of, all of that, um, the employer basically, by breaking the law, uh, has narrowed down the doorway into, into that uh, social welfare system. Um, and, uh, you know, they have narrowed it so much that it's nearly impossible for workers to get there now. Right. And there's a kind of perverseness to this setup here in which because we don't have a robust welfare state and the welfare state to the extent that it exists is employer provided, which is wrung out of those employers through union struggle. There's this kind of centrifugal force in which when the 70s come around and employers want to engage in a really aggressive new campaign to uh, save costs, they're going to do it by uh, attacking workers and where, you know, social welfare state is expensive. So social welfare benefits are the first place that you're going to uh, go after. And so uh, it's sort of it's sort of perverse in this way that, well, because you don't have a welfare state that is provided by the government, because it's provided by employers, uh, then uh, employers are at a competitive disadvantage, they would say, uh, in, in a time of economic crisis. And then uh, they're all of a sudden attacking your welfare benefits and, and, and those are going out the window. So the, the lack of a welfare state leads to having le- even less of a welfare state. That's right. And in order for working people to effectively build power today, uh, I think we ha- that we have to, they have to have more security outside of the employment relationship. I mean, the employers just have so much power over people. We've seen it in the recent pandemic, right? Tens of millions of people lose their jobs. They lose their health care. They lose their pensions. They lose a, a base decent wage, right? And, uh, and people know, people absolutely know how much employers, the power that they have over their lives. And uh, imagine how much more free people would be to build democratic institutions if they um, weren't so dependent on employers who have all this power uh, and where the law won't ever punish them when they break the law and violate workers' rights. So you have about half of the book as laying out the argument and the arguments. And then the other half is about these case studies. So I wonder if you could talk about some of the uh, case studies, the, the one that maybe people are most familiar with would probably be uh, nine to five, which I have to say was my favorite 
uh, chapter, both because everyone knows that you know nine to five is this uh, the the song, an incredible working class anthem. I mean that that's just a, a fascinating story. So maybe you know you don't have to just talk about nine to five, but just for me, can we can we start with nine to five? Sure, I'd be happy to. So yeah, you know what I do with the case studies, the sort of uh, the stories, is I try to really get at. Um, some of the pieces of the standard narrative for, for labor's decline. And so one of the things you often hear is, oh, well, um, unions didn't do enough organizing in service and retail jobs. You know, um, they, a lot of the growth in the economy wasn't in industry anymore. It was in in these other jobs and, um, you know, they didn't, they didn't try. So in nine to five, this is such an interesting case because this is a group of women uh, based in Boston who who worked in clerical jobs and who um, definitely gained a new consciousness from the women's movement and decided to build an organization uh, that would build a class-based power for them as women in their jobs but they very consciously decided not to do it within the union structure. They decided not to use collective bargaining as one of their um, tools that they, that they were going to start with. And so um, they ended up building an association of, uh, of, of working women, and they used civil rights suits. They used publicity. They would have bad boss you know, uh, campaigns. Um, for instance, they, uh, declared that, you know, one time the bad boss was one who required that his secretary sew up the hole in his pants while he was wearing them, (laughs) uh, you know, so they would just use shame. Um, and, uh, They also formed a sister organization, which was a union based with SEIU, first local, the numbers 925, and then District 925. And in in a parallel structure, they also engaged in collective bargaining. Um, And I find this so interesting because uh, it is a model that I would love to see more organizations use today where you're using this whatever seat of power you can find, right? Um, And, you know, a lot of times um, I've had people on the left say, oh, well, that's nine to five, that's too bad. They They didn't really make a big difference in the long run. And what they mean when they say that is that they, that they didn't, organize all the secretaries in the U.S. into traditional unions. Like, that's what they mean. Like, that there weren't more secretaries who would raise up those Bureau of Labor of Statistics numbers on union membership. But from my experience as a working woman, you know, nobody ever asked me uh, to get them a cup of coffee or called me honey in in the workplace. it was just a different world by the time I got there. And they were absolutely part of changing the experience for working women in this country. Right. And 
that you have a section where you're talking about the sort of like the the organizing that 95 is doing that that helps lead to the famous film 95 uh, one of the greatest working class movies that's ever been made in all of American history. Uh, and I had no idea that, uh, nine to five literally like came out of, uh, I mean, Karen Nussbaum, uh, knew Jane Fonda, right. From, uh, the anti-war movement and their conversations <laughs> helped like lead to the idea for the movie. And then actually, uh, Fonda went to a nine to five meeting in Cleveland. Am I getting that right? And, and met with a bunch of, uh, 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 women who were involved in nine to five there and, and, and took her ideas, uh, some of her ideas for the movie from that meeting with the women activists. Absolutely. So, so basically Jane Fonda asked this group of women who, who did clerical work in Ohio, um, what, you know, what were their fantasies about getting back at their boss? And Jane Fonda will say, like, there were some that were so over the top they couldn't <laughs> use them for the movie. Well, right? <laughs> I can only imagine what was considered more over the top since what actually happens in 9 to 5 is pretty over the top. I won't spoil it for anyone who hasn't seen it yet, but it's pretty over the top. Right. No, there was there was a lot more than that. <laughs> and, and so they had to they had to sort of tone it down a little bit from what these women uh, came up with. But but so there's a there's another piece to this, which is after they made the film, they um, they then took it on the road and used it. You know, uh, Jane Fonda went to lots uh, met with working women around the country and it was became a sort of a further organizing tool uh, to build the organization and to build the movement. There's this great quote in here uh, from Jane Fonda. You include the, the other day our lawyer saw the film. For the first time in all the years I've known him, when he wanted coffee, he went out and got it himself. <laughs> yes. <laughs> She's like seeing it in real time in front of her face uh, yeah. you know, as, as she makes the movie. It's, it's incredible. Right. right. And so it, yeah, it just shows you the, how, you know, satire, how that kind of uh, cultural <laughs> representation can have, have a, a really deep effect. Yeah. So how about some of the other, uh, maybe the Newport News example, the uh, the shipyard? Uh, that's yeah. that's the one that you said was the the largest union election uh, in the South uh, of that era, right? Yeah, uh, no, the largest ever in the oh, South wow. period. Okay. Yeah, and the largest in the 1970s. So as we discussed, the standard narrative says that workers lost interest in unions, were turned off by the union bureaucracy. Unions missed the vote on the new energy of the civil rights and women's movement. But the Newport News story really shows us the way that the civil rights struggles and women's rights struggles were deeply intertwined in real people's lives. The Newport News shipyard in Virginia was a case where four African-American men first filed charges through civil rights law to gain access to the good jobs in the yard. And they won two landmark EEOC cases but then by the 1970s, these same men um, were uh, unhappy with their pay, and they turned to the Steelworkers Union to help them uh, improve working conditions. They sparked a union campaign uh, among 19,000 workers. Uh, and uh, when the workers 
there couldn't get a contract in 1979. They struck for 82 days. Part of that was a wildcat strike, which prompted a very violent police reaction. Um, and, uh, you know, I think that at Newport News, you definitely saw um, that there was uh, a cross-race, cross-gender alliance. Um, you know, so for example, um, once these workers had a contract, uh, they were one of the largest contingents at a big rally for the ERA in Virginia. And there were more men than women that marched for that, for the ERA as uh, part of the Newport News contingent. Um, and so uh, I think, you know, what we see there is uh, that the struggles of civil rights and women's rights uh, worked in tandem with their, with their class action. Um, you, you might say, well, uh, Navy ships, perhaps that had to be built uh, in the U.S. So maybe they were sort of outside globalization. Uh, but I look at another Southern industrial setting, which is Cannon Mills, and I look at two elections there, one in 1974, which was really before the globalization of that industry, and one in 1985. And what I find is that the employer used imports in a globalizing economy as a weapon to fight these workers' efforts to, to form a union. So one narrative that we often hear about unions in this era is that unions were racist, unions were sexist, and, and that's uh, that's why you know th that that sunk their uh, their ability to organize large numbers of of uh, women and people of color. I mean, unions certainly were, many of them were reactionary and hidebound institutions, which that's a whole other conversation for, for the impact of that in the, in the sixties and seventies. But your book seems to be uh, pushing uh, back against uh, both of those narratives in its own way. So unions definitely were racist and sexist. There were many unions that still resisted having African-American membership, for instance, um, it was, there were very few African-American or women leaders in unions. Uh, many union members um, would even, you know, uh, attack or harass women as they came into unions. So definitely unions were racist and sexist. But that did not dissuade women and people of color from forming unions. A full 70% of African-American blue-collar workers said that they would form a union if given the chance. The AFL-CIO in the 1970s estimated that one out of three new members were African-American. Um, you know, it's important to recognize that people like uh, the workers at Newport News, uh, African-American workers who pushed to form a union, um, the women who formed a union through nine to five, right? They too were part of the movement. They were part of unions. And, uh, you know, when we um, only talk about unions as though they were white male led organizations and only look at that part, 
then we are ignoring this grassroots push among all these folks who wanted to be part of the movement and who wanted full access to what collective bargaining could offer. I certainly buy your overall argument about, uh, you know, it, it wasn't it wasn't the last days of the working class. It was, it was the first and that those were smashed by uh, the boss, not from from workers not wanting to organize. Um, but it seems to me, I mean, you know, any 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 discussion on this kind of thing inevitably leads to the what is to be done section for the uh, for the current day. And it seems to me like the period you're describing and certainly from the historical detail you give is that actually these workers were not bought off or uninterested in unionization or anything like that. They, they really wanted to, to go through the narrow door. They wanted to uh, gain access to the social welfare state. They wanted to do it through unions. Uh, but you're, you're describing a period in which the levels of political consciousness were quite high, obviously, coming out of uh, the heyday of the civil rights movement, coming from the feminist movement. And uh, we're obviously in a different uh, period now. I mean, there's not as you know, there are plenty of people who are, uh, you know, we were, we're not too far out from uh, the, the teacher strike wave, which I think caught all of us by significant surprise. Uh, there are workers in gig economy jobs who are organizing under COVID, uh, healthcare workers. So, I mean, there, there are many examples we can point to, but there's not that same kind of ferment uh, present in society right now. And uh, I was thinking about this as I was uh, writing the new preface to me and Megan Day's book, Bigger Than Bernie, where we were talking about what, what some of the things that we learned from the Bernie campaign. And, and one seems to be that people, it's not that people are opposed to progressive change that would build up a decent welfare state like Medicare for All. It's that people's expectations have been so beaten out of them over the years uh, that that they they don't even believe many people don't believe that such a thing would even be possible to accomplish. Like it's not the same thing that you're talking about in your book, where people are like, "I see that I can organize a union here, and my life will look very different, and so I'm going to go do it." Like today, people just almost like don't believe that the world could look any better than the hellscape that we currently live in. So um, it's it's kind of a chicken or the egg question, isn't it? About like how how do you rebuild that sense of people wanting to you know believing that their that their subjective efforts to change the world can actually come to something? Uh, you know how do you create that? Um, so I, yeah, that's a, that's a very broad and, and thorny question, but I wonder what your response to it is. So. I think that in order to judge what's happening with working people today and to see the movement today, we have to let go of the uh, benchmarks or standards that we would use, you know, to look at the movement in the 1970s. They, they aren't directly comparable, right? So you are absolutely right that in the 1970s, people had lived through an era of more plenty, right? Uh, not everybody had access to that, but people understood what that was, um, that there was uh, sort of an era of, of more uh, people saw that unions were the access to that. So when you had all the women and people of color who gained new access to the jobs after the Civil Rights Act, well, that's what they wanted, right? They wanted in. <laughs> they wanted to be part of that. Um, and that people don't have that kind of understanding anymore because they haven't lived through it. Their parents, you know, haven't even lived through it. However, 
Uh, I think it would be wrong to judge class action today by how much people are striking or forming unions or uh, even, um, you know, uh, forming other kinds of organizations. I think that we have to look at people's class actions and with with a whole different way. And there, it is always there, especially under capitalism, right? People are going to figure out ways to build more power and they will figure out how to do it collectively. And so you're right, there's some of the sort of more traditional things that we think about, like the Red for Ed, all the young people at the at you know, Vice and all these different media groups that have been forming unions, all the graduate students and, and university folks who've been forming unions. Um, this is all, this is all very exciting. In 2019, there was more, you know, more people on strike in 2018 and 2019 than we've seen since the early 80s. Um, but I think that there is also a new class consciousness, and I see it coming up after uh, the the Great Recession, 2008, 2009, I see it in Occupy, right? That I see, and that is a that was uh, linked in many ways to a global movement. I see it um, uh, even, I, I think, uh, the, the immigrants' rights marches, the day without an immigrant, that's a general strike, right? I see it in uh, a lot of, what the Black Lives Matter movement is saying, it's saying this is a racial capitalism. Like this is, it's it's a movement against police violence, but it's also a movement against uh, a, a, a racialized violence within this system, in this capitalist system. And and uh, so I see definitely that there's strong elements of a class struggle there. Um, and so... I think it is wrong to see this moment as quiet. We are not living through a quiet class moment. We are living through an incredibly vibrant one. It's just that the forms that people are choosing are different than they would have chosen when we had robust collective bargaining. Um, and, uh, and I think that if we are willing to see that there is a diversified working class, and we're able to see some of those international links, it becomes incredibly hopeful. All right, well, thank you. The Vast Majority is produced by Sarah Hurd. You can always reach out to us at vastmajoritypodcast at gmail.com. And please, if you are not already subscribed to Jacobin, subscribe to our print issue, or you can get an online version at jacobinmag.com slash subscribe.